Hello, everyone. Thank you again for joining us today. I'm here with Quinton Van Meter, who is on the board of the American College of Pediatrics, and he's been an endocrinologist for how many years now? Uh, 44 years. 44. It's a long time. Yeah. Seems like yesterday. <laughs> um, and if I, I recall one of your colleagues telling me that you studied under John Money or with John Money at some point. I did when I was a fellow in pediatric endocrinology at Johns Hopkins from 1978 to 1980. Uh, he was on the faculty and he frequently uh, in, in, came into our presence to uh, give impromptu lectures uh, to be as offensive as humanly possible uh, to the uh, sort of faith-filled religious female fellows in, amongst us. He had a real penchant to, to really try to make their lives very uncomfortable. That was one of his favorite things to do. Wow. What, like, why? He was, a, he was a, a very odd and I would say perverted man who was really unhappy. Um, he, uh, he came to Johns Hopkins because uh, of the draw of finding kids who were uh, so-called intersex, uh, kids that were born with ambiguous genitalia, and he wanted to play around with them and see what he could do in terms of changing their, their identities, if you will, from one, one sexual identity to another sexual identity. Um, he, was, he worked with adult patients um, doing the same thing, and uh, he actually could not get any cooperation with the adult endocrine division at Hopkins. And so we, as pediatric endocrine fellows, had to interface with his adult transsexual patients, as they were called back then. And it was a motley lot of individuals. There weren't a lot of them, but they, they were really sort of caricatures of, of females uh, who were biologically male. And, and it was, uh, we, we got into situations where I was actually uh, sent to the federal penitentiary in Baltimore to examine one of the uh, male patients that John Money had advised be medically castrated with uh, Depo Provera, which was what we used to, in those days, we didn't have puberty blockers. And if we had kids with precocious puberty, we treated them with Depo Provera, which is, of course, Planned Parenthood's, you know, out of the box, simple thing to, for birth control. It's a, a shot you get every, every uh, three or four months. And so that's what was used to stop the pituitary from stimulating the gonads and producing the male hormones. And uh, it was not done in clinical trials. This was just John Money's idea. Hey, if it works for kids, let's, let's do it on adults and uh, see how they, how they do for sex offenders. And, um, you know, the phone rang one afternoon and I happened to be the fellow on call and he said, hi, this is Dr. Money. I need you to go to the penitentiary and examine this male patient who's having tingling of his breasts. And you need to go and find out what's really going on. Well, nothing was going on. The guy just wanted to, to talk. <laughs> and, you know, it, you, you know, yeah, he was in on 16 counts of rape. Uh, you know, and it was just it was one of those circumstances where you just, you know, you don't feel comfortable uh, with what's going on. And money also uh, screwed up any number of patients, including one of mine. I mean, we literally have had a, a normal anatomically future healthy little baby boy, he would have had the genitals cut off and tried to raise the, the baby as a girl just because he had a theory and it didn't really pan out. Uh, we were doing medicine, he was doing theories, and the little boy responded very well to our therapy and would not, would, would have been, uh, you know, 
absolutely ruined uh, by this procedure. So he was he was dangerous. Uh, he was offensive. Uh, he was he sort of uh, had ideas off the cuff that he he had he came to us one afternoon with a theory. He didn't have any slides made up because that took time and expense. Uh, it wasn't a PowerPoint in those days. It was actually you'd develop a slide, and then you'd have to make a gel of it, and then you'd you know it, it was it was a process that took several weeks. And so he he came in with a a legal pad and a pencil, and he sort of said to all of us as fellows, I, I have a theory that um, people who have amputations of their limbs actually pre-plan that in most cases so that they can lose their limb and masturbate their stump as a sexual object. And I, I looked at him, and he was, he was draw busily drawing a stump of a leg with ejaculate coming out the end of it, and the, and the poor Female fellows were just, I mean, they were trying to look away and trying to just, you know, get out of the room if they possibly could. And I said, well, Dr. Manny, I, I trained at the Naval Hospital in Oakland and, you know, our eighth floor with half pediatrics, half um, of, of the patients from the research, prosthetics research lab, you know, all the people coming back from the Vietnam theater who had limb, you know, mangled and stuff, they, who had amputations, they all came through and they, they developed prosthetics for these patients. and. You know, they had really in-depth psychological evaluation of each of the patients, and there was nothing like that at all. That, that, that wasn't even an option to even consider, or what was it discovered or discussed. He said, oh, well, never mind, and he took his pencil and pad and walked out of the room. That's, that's the kind of person that was, we were dealing with. And, you know, it was like, do we really have to do this? Do we have to have money? come and evaluate our patients or get, stick his nose in under our tent because it's really, it stinks. He was really bad. I, I just have to ask, like, did anybody know why he was permitted to just be such a miserable, like, person? Like, why was he, why was he given, like, free reign to just come in and be like, hey, let's start but doing some crazy he, stuff? You know, he published some, you know, books that were thought to be, you know, really uh, on the forefront of human sexuality. Uh, as it turns out, he and Kinsey uh, were, you know, doing the same kind of shallow uh, work that had nothing to do with science and everything to do with personal bias. Um, but it brought Hopkins, you know, revenue. I mean, he, they, he published his books underneath the Hopkins imprimatur. Um, and, you know, they, they, they had a, a sense of, you know, positive notoriety for, for his work until it fell on its face. And then all of a sudden they said, oh, goodness. You know, along comes Professor Paul McHugh to take over the psychiatry division. He takes one look at what money's been up to and says, out the door, buddy. You know, we're closing your program immediately. Well, not immediately, but over the course of several years, they they actually did a follow up study on the adult patients and found out there was no improvement in mental health whatsoever. So McHugh said that ends ends immediately. We're not doing this anymore. And then the Raymer twins both uh, died as a result of, of uh, directly and indirectly from John Money's intervention, and that that was a big scab on the surface uh, for Johns Hopkins to have to deal with. So they just sort of said, oh well, you know, we won't talk about him. You know, that was a bad, that was a sad era. We're done. We made a mistake. In 19, or rather 2017, they brought money back out of the dregs and said he's our co-founder, father of all transgender health. He is, you know, he's, we were the cutting edge. 
we're so glad that we have a transgender clinic at Hopkins, uh, and we're so proud, you know, and I'm thinking, no, it's the same, it's the same process. You just are dressed yeah. it up in, in, in current times with uh, ideologies that again are perverse, um, not based on science, uh, and hurting people. Man, that guy, what a piece of work. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I've read, unfortunately, too many of those accounts and about the, the boys who were mutilated and made to live as girls and all of those things, not just the, the Reimer twins, yeah. um, were victims of his, but also other children. And just, it, it was sickening, but I had to read it just to, to know, to get that education for myself and to, um, spread that awareness and, and talk about this because it is so disturbing. These experiments are done on children before they ever get to, to experience life as, as their sex. It's crazy. I saw one activist saying that, oh, well, your gender identity is actually cemented by the time you're three or four. How? You haven't had time to live as either gender yet, really. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the old the old adage was that by eighteen months, uh, a toddler probably has had their hands around their genital structures to know what's there and what's not there. Uh, they don't verbalize that, but they're you know uh, they're sort of busy with their hands, and some of it might be some you know, mild masturbatory effort on their part, which is age appropriate and just curiosity. And if it feels good, you know, repeat the rinse and repeat and, and do it again. And, and so there is a sense that there is a, uh, a knowledge of that, but it's not cemented necessarily. Um, we always said in terms of our trying to solve the problem of a child born with ambiguous genitalia is to figure out what the function, what's the reproductive function of that individual. And what is the sexual function of that individual going to be with the anatomy that they, if they don't have it and it can't be constructed, what is the best outcome for this patient? And those decisions are, were made as a team. Money gave input to that, but he was really pushing to say, well, let's, let's get this done, get the surgery done and ask questions later. There was no informed consent. There was no protocol. There was no institutional review board setting up a protocol for this is how you proceed and this is these are the safety things and this is you know research mm -hmm. today is 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 guarded by the protection for human subjects and and you know you you have an independent organization looking at the the informed consent process and the protocol design you have an in, and additionally an independent safety committee which has you know there's no financial crossover no interest in that the, the safety committee is independent entirely of the investigators and the institution, and they look for signals of, of harm. And yeah. they're called adverse events, and then they're called serious adverse events when it involves a hospitalization or a death. And those must be reported within 24 hours, and the safety committee has the power to stop the protocol in its tracks if anybody dies as a result of, you know, the, of, the, of the intervention, whatever it is. And so it's very su surprising that the NIH allowed their conglomerate study that's ongoing with the four uh, centers, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, and, and Chicago, uh, who are, uh, you know, have patients that are being followed in their NIH grant funded protocol to observe what's going on in the transgender clinics and come out with um, ongoing assessment of their mental health that 
two patients killed themselves and 11 or seven additional were, were uh, suicide, had suicidal ideation in these protocols. And so if you had a true safety committee, they would have said, all of this has got to stop, S you know, signal to each of, the, of these institutions to cease Im immediately until we can pull back, evaluate whether or not the deaths were related to what was going on with the interventions, and if so, uh, cease and desist moving forward. None of that has happened. Uh, they actually reported in the New England Journal of Medicine last year uh, how successful this protocol was, never mind the two deaths and the suicidal ideation and the others. We are on the right track. We have proven the mental health improvements, and gosh, aren't we happy? And the, this is in what was touted, what is, has been touted, is probably the most prestigious medical journal on the planet. And and they wrote that, and the editors allowed it to, to be published. And it's like, wait a minute, what has taken over these organizations and these journals um, and these academic institutions to to look past that? Yeah. I think that's the question we're all asking. Is it money? Is it um, some kind of ideation? And why would that have corrupted so many people? It, it's a it's a it's a little bit of a power, you know, grab in academia. And if you can get your name on papers, you know, you are you know you basically get grants, uh, and mm -hmm. grants are what run the research. And and you know, federal grants essentially do so much to to fund the research in the clinical teaching departments. Um, and if you have more papers published, you, you know, you're higher up on the list to get, be able to get a decent amount of, of funding or, you know, whatever you want. And then you get other doors opening for you. So there's that. And then there's just the egotistical nature of the individuals who are very, very narcissistic individuals uh, who, who <laughs> love to see their, their names and in, in publications and at meetings and, you know, and love to be swarmed with fans who say, oh, wow, you're doing so much good. You know, you're an expert in this field and, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. So what we're trying to do is just save the lives of children, you know, behind the scenes. Yeah. Do you think that it is that kind of egotistical attitude, that false confidence of that bravado that money had that lended to his... I, I guess I would say success with his peers of like being able to be like, oh, I'm just so contradictory. I'm so sure of myself. I must know something that you don't. No, I th that was that would describe money to a T. <clears throat> he was, you know, he he loved the celebrity of what he was doing, and he was the darling of the sexual revolution. Uh, and then, you know that <laughs> there you go, you know that, yeah. that was big in the '60s and '70s. You know, just like Kinsey. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's like, you know, if you look into what these men actually did, it's so perverted and so awful and so yeah. dishonest, intellectually dishonest that uh, it should never have seen the light of day. But, you know, they, in their time, they were, you know, highly celebrated individuals for most of their lives. Yeah. I've been looking into the uh, sexual revolution and it basically just seems like a bunch of perverts realized that they could tell everybody else, hey, you can be perverts and it'll make you happy. And people yeah. believed them. <laughs> You know, I mean, it basically gave you permission to do um, things which you, in your your you know core of your being, knew were probably immoral. Uh, you know, I mean, if you have a moral compass, if it's if it's a non-religious moral compass, if you want to think of it that way, or if you are a, a devoutly religious human being who lived by the precepts of your faith, um, you were you were to be laughed at. You know, you, we're mm -hmm. we're going to make you uncomfortable. We are so 
um, sick and tired of being, you know, proselytized to and, and preached at it. And, and, you know, you can't touch us. We, we've got you on this one. We're going to, we're going to open up this Pandora's box. It just, you know, you, we're going to have so much fun watching you squirm. I mean, literally money love to watch. Yeah. Would you say that the sexual revolution is kind of like where all of this tinkering with hormones like really took off because we do see things like the birth control pill mm -hmm. starting to be like mainstream and things like that around the same time. So, I mean, that, again, that's a, that's an issue where uh, it was sort of open-ended. It was a quick answer. Uh, it was touted to be sort of, well, that will be the, you know, the end of abortions, you know, sort of sold as this is, this is a way for, and what it, I mean, it unlinked um, marriage and, and sex. I mean, it really, really did that. It's just, it, you, mm -hmm. you know, and it, and that actually was a pathway to, uh, to uh, uncontested divorces as well. I mean, it just, it follows and it follows and it sort of, we're unraveling the nuclear family in any way we possibly can. And that's, you know, somewhere behind the scenes is this sort of continuum from the late 1800s, you know, in, in Europe, the Frankfurt School, you know, passing Marxism along the way, trying to rear its head in various and sundry iterations throughout the 20th century and still pervasive today in so many devious ways through yeah. you know, what looks like, um, you know, uh, social justice and whatnot. And what it is, is, hey, what we really want to do is to take down the family, make it go away, get rid of religious faith, have one faith, and that is in your governmental agencies who will basically tell you what you can and cannot do. Um, yeah. You know, you're not in charge. And um, so you give up those rights. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, definitely. And that's, you say, oh, conspiracy theory, tin hat, you know, tinfoil hat stuff. No, I mean it's this this when you actually get people to step outside the box and speak honestly. You know, they're you know they they have a bone to pick with you know with a faith based family based society, and they see it yeah. as uh, an impediment to to their long term strategies. And so, what can we do to pick at it and make it crumble and fall on its knees? This is. Yeah, sort and of a string of things that, that help that along. I think part of that might come from, oh, well, some religious families were, you know, extreme or bad or whatever. But I think also another part of it is like we've seen with the, the doctors and things like that or the people behind the scenes power grab. Because if you destabilize the family unit, the most foundational structure for anybody Mm -hmm. then what's left? Who's going to take care of you? Oh, well, the state and we'll just tell you what to do. And well, we have all the answers and right. now they have all the power and the loyalty. And so, the funding and, you know, and yeah, they can direct, you know, they can, they can grab onto your children in the schools mm -hmm. um, and keep the parents out of the loop. Um, you know, I, yeah. I, 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 the thought of a school inviting in a, uh, drag queen to to be anywhere near a child is is beyond the pale. I mean, it's you know, first of all, it's so offensive to women that the, the yeah. drag queens are uh, you know are just they're such caricatures of of what, mm -hmm. what a woman is is supposed to be, uh, and so disrespectful thereof. And so, how how do if feminists look at that and say that's you know, hey. You know, we're going to squash you like a bug. We, you know, we're a very powerful lobbying or group. You know, we we're going to stand up and be against you. You know, doing what you do for your 
it's her theatrical preference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't really have any any respect for you know the drag queens. I mean, I, <laughs> people can can do what they want uh, in their own little personal space, but when they begin adversely affecting the the, the lives of individuals uh, who they're exposing their ideas to, um, they have to be called to question, you know, and, yeah. and held responsible and, and they're celebrated. You know, this is, this, mm-hmm. it's like, how, how did we get here? I mean, you know, we're, this yeah. is just, we keep getting these sort of explosions of insanity uh, and, and you think, yeah. no, no, no. I mean, well, I always think of my poor father-in-law who passed away in, in 1995, um, a, you know, a career naval officer at, at, mm-hmm. at Absolutely, his integrity was to his bone. Uh, he, you know, he ethics that that were just a model to to uh, to see a human being. And um, I just I think he would be he would probably die of fright if he if <laughs> had the ability to come back yeah. and see the world because it's it was, just disgusting. Yeah, it was always supposed to be um, adult entertainment and meant to be kind of like a. A specific like niche thing and now it's become this mainstream thing and um i guess people were sympathetic initially because like with the transgender thing it has a narrative of oh i was oppressed and this makes me feel powerful and good about myself and people can relate to that and that's i think the most insidious thing about this is they take people's insecurities and appeal to them and say, oh, I can, you can relate to me. I can relate to you. And so that's why you just have to let me do whatever I want. And yep. <laughs> it's like, why would no. I ever do you any harm? I'm, I am the, you know, I am the emperor mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm in my new clothes and you will, you know, <laughs> we just go along with this and, you know, it, God forbid you should question, you know, because I'm the expert and you're not. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in a position to, uh, to heal. And you're broken, and I'm going to heal you. And you know, come over mm-hmm. and be happy for the first time uh, in your life for about ten minutes or a year, maybe. And then don't come back to me when you, you know, and blame me for God's sake for what what I've recommended and done to you. I mean, the detransitioners' stories are just heartbreaking, and yeah. there, we're going to hear more and more and more of those things because uh, there there's some brave individuals out there who. Have mm-hmm. hated themselves for so long, thought that transing was the right thing to do, and realized they still hate themselves, and probably are far more embarrassed and and self loathing than they were before they considered going through the medical and surgical interventions. And yeah. you know, they, it takes incredible courage to stand up and say, "I did wrong. It was my choice." Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's an adult kind of, you know pulling your arm and saying, come this way, it'll be fine. You're only 15. You don't need your breasts. You know, that that's the tragedy when you, when I think there's legal recourse of an adult consents, supposedly they understand everything, but there are adults who fully agree Mm -hmm. that they were never, ever given full informed consent about what to expect. And and they're, they started this detransitioner tsunami that's coming and the others are coming along. Yeah. I have a lot of friends um, who are detransitioners and I admire them so much <laughs> because of, I mean, I, I can't imagine like not only were they harmed this way, but now they speak about it and they just get so much vitriol back at them. And it, it's, 
incredible that they have been able to find the fortitude to keep pushing and be able to trust anybody ever again. Like I, yeah, they're, they're incredible people. And I'm so grateful for their friendship. The vicious nature of it. Um, Chloe Cole, who has sort of been the the first and forefront, you know, young lady who, who went through transition that surgically, um, was at a rally with, um, I can't remember the specific individual who was with her uh, in on a college camp. Oh, it was Billboard Chris, and I don't know that you know who he is, mm-hmm. but he's just a crusader uh, who is so vibrant and fun fun to listen to and to be <laughs> with. Um, he he was wearing his billboards, and Chloe was with him, and they were about three hundred and fifty uh, antagonistic uh, protesters. One of whom was a drag queen with giant breasts. Who came and <laughs> flaunted them in front of Chloe's Chloe's face and said, "Eat your heart out, baby." Oh my god! Now, I mean, you know that to the to the bone is so insanely cruel. But that's you know that's but, the- you know Chloe's the oppressor there. Clearly, Chloe yeah. and Chris—they're just the two of them. They're oppressing oh. all of those people. Oh. Yeah. They're you know clearly the ones that are being mean and horrible and everything else. Yeah. Well, there's an old adage that, you know, if somebody comes after you claiming things, it's usually they're, they're telling you, you did what they are actually doing instead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're, they're guilty of what they claim you're doing that you're actually not doing. And uh, so they they take their own self hostility and throw it at you, Mm -hmm. especially when they're dead wrong. You know, the more they, more they are in, in the, in the wrong side of the issue, the, the more vitriolic and horrible Mm -hmm. things happen. Yes, they do tend to be pretty nasty, but um, to get to more of your expertise, I have quite a few questions because um, I have a lot of discourse with activists online because I I enjoy it kind of. It like helps me develop my arguments when they throw some, sometimes they'll really throw something out of left field and I'm like, well, you know. I hadn't um, heard it worded that way, so I'm going to go ahead and and see how we can argue against this. But um, one thing I hear all the time is, well, we use puberty blockers for precocious puberty, and they're fine. That's all fine. We don't see any issues with women who went through precocious puberty and were on puberty blockers. I looked into those studies, and they're actually really lacking in my experience in like the side effects and things like that. They're mostly just focused on fertility retention um, and height and that's it. Yeah. Those are the the, the two issues are the reason you use them in youngsters is to preserve height when that becomes an issue. And some of these kids are uber tall. And so, you know, they're, they're tall because mm-hmm. they started early, but they also have a, a potential to be a very fine a, a adult height if, if left entirely alone. The problem is that it's really socially awkward for a, particularly for, and these are fe- predominantly females, for them to be menstruating in first and second grade. You know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. just, it, just it, it, it creates a social circumstance that, that is very, very awkward. So, um, you know, those are, there's the social issues and there's the height preservation issues that help us govern uh, whether or not we recommend this as an option for the, for the girls and, and, the, and the boys who are, have true precocious puberty. 
Um, there aren't very many. I mean, we, we see a lot because that's on our in our wheelhouse. But precocious puberty is is rare. I mean, it really is rare, truly. There are a lot of um, things that look like puberty that aren't that get called precocious puberty. Puberty is not happening any earlier today than it was in 1960. When I, you know, and so men are, start, menstrual periods in females uh, on an average, if you're Caucasian, it's uh, 12 and a half. If you're African-American or Hispanic, it's 12 years of age. That's been there, that's been there. It hasn't moved, it hasn't budged, but we're told that puberty is heading up again earlier and earlier. It's being blamed on food additives and, you know, hormones and chemicals and stuff. Uh, just, just to just to be contrary and to and to basically ruin, you know, industries and and to point fingers and blame. So the real mm-hmm. truth is it's it is rare. But it you know we have this tool which every single family that I deal with I say this is an option, and it's I'm not mandating this. I'm putting this on a table. There have been reports of emotional turmoil really cranking up in in some of the cases in some of the kids it's not common but i don't want you to go into this you know blindly there have not been birth defects or infertility any greater than the general population in the study group that's been followed for about 30 years now that's not very many patients i mean we're talking about mm-hmm. they're 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 maybe a 30 plus and they keep you know they they keep disappearing because they're out of the loop and the the company that is doing the follow-up can't find where they've gone. And, you know, that happens yeah. in studies. But, you know, we know we can recommend this as a safe thing in terms of not not creating infertility in the long run, which is the key issue. Um, and so having said that, you know, we say we, we're going to warn you that there might be, you know, if your child is prone to anxiety, this could, this intervention, you know, it's only going to be for a short period of time. You know, we're not talking about doing this indefinitely. As a matter of fact, what we're going to try to do is to pull the plug on the on the uh, suppression of puberty at a time so that your child can enter puberty along with their age-matched peers, so that they're not really mm-hmm. outside the box in regard to onstra- onset of of menstruation. And so, it's a timing thing where we often the average age I would say for females that we see in our practice is is uh, age seven. Okay, because anything that, you know, we're, we're getting these referrals of the girls that are truly in puberty, and uh, we find they are truly in puberty before they before their eighth birthday, and, and say, this is the circumstance, your child's height is either going to be, you know, in trouble or, or not. And, you know, we would expect that the, your child is going to be menstruating about this age or not. And, you know, how do you feel and what do you feel comfortable with letting things go and we just monitor and there's you know nature takes its course or doing a temporary interruption of this for a very calculated time uh, and knowing that we are not interrupting the physiologic timing of puberty in adolescence when the body is expecting to have all the organ systems respond to the hormones that are uh, you know assigned biologically to that that body that you know if you're a male you're going to have certain responses to testosterone and estrogen if you're female likewise and they're different in, in males and females um, the pulsatile activity of the hypothalamic secretion of the natural hormones that that create the pubertal move uh, are essential for brain growth and mm-hmm. they have done they published a study in uh, in the endocrine journal the journal of um, endocrinology and clinical metabolism uh, that said, hey, you know, we've discovered that uh, there are problems with uh, early dementia 
in patients mm. who don't have this this change in adolescence of the cycling of the of the natural you know hormones that induce puberty how critical it is for that pulsatile action to occur to avoid uh, early dementia. So, I mean, bingo, right there, you say, oh my God. So we're, you know when not to block it. You know it's okay when they're little for a little while, but to start them at age you know, 10 or nine or eight and keep that suppression, and then on top of that, throw in the cross-sex hormones, which just add on to the suppression. Um, and to keep doing that is you are, it's an open-ended experiment and we already have evidence this is not good for the human body. Just, yeah. I read somewhere that, um, I wish I had the study with me. I meant to, and then I forgot to bring it with me. Um, it was, it was saying something that kids who were put on, uh, blockers for precocious puberty had lower IQs than kids who were not put on puberty blockers. Um, it's not really a, a clean study. It's an all sort of a retrospective re review. Uh, and so there has, there's no baseline testing of, of intellectual function, which okay. you really need to do. So, I mean, I would trust mm -hmm. that if you could bias that against it, you know, or, as well as you could buy, bias it for it saying, see, we've, we did a study and there's no difference. Well, what was your study? Well, we would, did some chart reviews. How do you find age matched controls? How do you mm -hmm. find kids that are blinded to getting this intervention uh, with a with a placebo? Okay, that's what yeah. you need to do is to literally follow. And it's a study that would never never be ethically approved by an institutional review board. You know, if you know that there are cases in nature where this is an issue, uh, mm -hmm. and you know there's harm to be done, uh, then it's unethical to do a study like that. And that's why n there will be no ongoing longitudinal study of puberty blockers and their safety because um, sterility is an outcome. And yeah. I'm sorry, but you know, you alter fertility unquestionably, not, not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, totally irreversibly, but you've interrupted the, the process of gonadal maturation and what that does, we don't know what that does. Uh, to the, yeah. you know, are we inducing production of spermatozoa and oocytes that are damaged, that mm -hmm. are gonna be prone to miscarriage or birth defects or uh, malignancies? I mean, we have no idea. Yeah, I think unfortunately we're gonna be finding out in the next few decades. Yeah. Um, and I am very sorry that we're going to be finding out. And I think a lot of other people should be very sorry about that too. But unfortunately, that's the that's what's happening. Well, um, and, the, and the people responsible for this experimentation are, will be, you know, long gone, retired, maybe not alive, yeah. and, and nothing is going to happen to them. Uh, that's the thing is, a lot of the people pushing this have like no horse in this race. Like they're they're just they can just wash their hands of it, move on, forget they ever said or did some things, and and whatever. And meanwhile, they're just pushing people towards the ledge and they're, they're, they don't see it. Yeah. They don't think about these lives. Like these are real lives with real consequences. And it's very confusing to me coming from a group of people that seem to care so much about, oh, quality of life. And these people are so depressed and so this and so that. And it's like, did you think through any of the stuff you're doing? Because, you know. You, everything has a cost. 
you can't just do everything and not think about that. Um, so it's very concerning. Um, so I wanted to ask you, I saw today that, um, WPATH membership is down by 60%. And I know that you, um, were speak, I saw you speaking about WPATH and its practices. And I wonder if you could cover that for our viewers because they didn't get to see your speech on that. So WPATH uh, started out as the Harry Benjamin Society, and that was uh, in honor, if you will, of Harry Benjamin, who was one of uh, John Money's associates. And he he had transitioned adults medically and recommended them to surgeons uh, around the world to do the uh, sort of destructive anatomical changes that uh, took perfectly healthy body parts and, and took them apart. Um, and so... Uh, it, I think it was in the early 90s, and I, I don't want to be quoted on this, but they, they just decided that they would rename themselves as the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. World is, is, an, is an appropriate term because they really, you know, the Harry Benjamin Society sort of was an international, uh, you know, clearinghouse, if you will, for people to, you know, contact us. There was no internet at the time. Um, to say, hey, I think I want to have surgery. I'm an adult, and I want to see find a doctor who can give me hormones. Where do I go? And well, they had a you know they had a network of uh, places to go in the United States uh, where you could get hormones here, surgery there, uh, and that was their purpose. It was a clearinghouse, an interest group. I mean, a real significant. You know, this is we're the people that recommend this, and we we can get you where you need to go. So putting putting the name you know trans you know so world uh, professional association of transgender health would um, sort of essentially give the impression that this was a scientifically based organization of certified uh, trained physicians who offered uh, certification in the field uh, and that this you know that that they were using science to to put together their clinical recommendations. They bypassed all of that, and you know you you can basically become a member of WPATH if you pay their dues. That's all that's required, um, and so that it, you don't have to have a degree. You can be a you know a high school dropout and you know become a member of WPATH. You can be a PhD biochemist and become a member of WPATH. And it's just you know if you're interested in this field and you want to promote our you know our our guidelines come on in and join and we'll we'll be glad to have you and they have meetings and they do training sessions of this is our this is our mantra these are what we tell you to do this is why you should do it and this is how you should do it and the, these are roadblocks for instance insurance doesn't cover this so you learn to lie and you know miscode around the idea and use a uh, a drug that's uh, less expensive than the the pediatric puberty blockers it's the same drug but it's FDA approved for adults for different indications. You can get that one at you know cost, and here's how you do a GoFundMe to get your you know people to send you money so you can get your puberty blockers. And um, the, you know it's so it is. This is what they quote train you as you know these are this is this is the mechanism. And mixed in there are the people who you know did the research in uh, in uh, the Netherlands. I mean that's they're they're there all of the. Directors of the transgender clinics in the United States are members of WPATH, and they are within that organization. There's starting to be a, a you know a, a schism, if you will, of those who say, "Ooh, um, we maybe should not be re making this recommendation. There are potential harms." 
Uh, and so th I think the, the organization is beginning to weaken from within. Uh, but it certainly is not it, it, the fact that they put together their recommendations not based on science. Those are not standards of care. They call them standards of care. You know, courts and, and judges and attorneys say, oh, well, these, these are the standards of care. Why are you against the worldly, you know, worldwide acceptance of these things? And well, you, we answer back, they are not. They are, they, these are the opinions of people based on, on anecdotal uh, surveys and things like that. So. Um, no, there is not really science behind it. So that's WPATH. And I, I didn't know they were dwindling in membership, but that's a, that's a good sign. Uh, yeah. You know, if they're lacking in science, maybe their luster is, is a bit less and they'll be less effective at recruiting people. And, uh, and I think I they'll think, be held accountable yeah. legally. They're, they are actually under the gun legally. They're being sued uh, for their recommendations. And, that, and I think that's a you know, point as many canons at, at that as you can, just like the American Academy of Pediatrics has come under fire for their uh, position statement that they wrote in 2018, uh, written by a resident in pediatrics. He wasn't even out of a training program and he was the sole author and kind of uh, took some uh, human rights campaign guidelines that had been laying around and he put them together and uh, you know, said, this is, this is the scientifically you know, strong basis for intervening and this is what you should do. Um, they're being sued, uh, and that doctor who wrote those are being sued. And it's, it's appropriate that they should be sued by a detransitioner because harm came to them yeah. based on what these people wrote and published as, you know, the, the most up-to-date uh, recommendations. Wow. Um, I you made me think of a, a good question kind of on the fly. Um, so you said you know you're being puberty blocked and you're being given um cross-sex hormones at the same time that would probably cause a little bit of turmoil i would think in the body because you're suppressing like the natural processes and and the natural balancing that takes place in the body along with like flooding it with exogenous hormones so well there are natural disease states where hormone levels are uh, where they shouldn't be, they're they're elevated, and there are these have been well known for uh, a century uh, as clinical entities. And then finally, when they figured out how hormones worked, exactly what the mechanism of harm was, women who are exposed to their own, from their own body to excessive amounts of testosterone-like hormones called androgens, and men who are exposed to excessive amounts of estrogens. Okay, so we know what the outcomes of those are, and. What, what the recommendations for treating these kids are, you know, they have guidelines from the Endocrine Society on one hand that says no woman should ever have a testosterone level raised greater than 100 nanograms per DL if you're going to intervene with supplemental testosterone for postmenopausal depression. Never raise the level above 100, period. On the other hand, the Endocrine Society guidelines for transgender health suggest that these girls should have testosterone levels raised to a thousand. Same, same organization, one recommendation for adult women in terms of testosterone uh, supplements and the other for, I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. Uh, and so we know the harms. Uh, we've got heart disease, strokes, cancers, it's, it's out there, it's all out there for everyone to see. And, and they're, they're busy trying to invent, um, you know, 
papers and, and getting them published. Like the minute that they're going there, they're right up there in the front of the journal uh, uh, saying, oh, this is safe. This is all safe. Mm-hmm. You know? We've looked at testosterone in, in uh, females assigned at birth, which just, I mean, yeah. makes you want to, your blood boil. You're thinking of that as yeah. a um, um, you know, like that's, that's where you get your sex from is what's assigned to you at birth yeah, as opposed to where you are biologically at the moment yeah. of conception. So, uh, you know, there, there's just, there's just nonsense happening. And, and I think the thing that will really bring this to its knees are all the legal recourse that's going to be taken against all yeah. the people that are doing this actively to kids. Um, yeah. and you know, that's, I hate to say it, but, you know, when, in a long conversation with uh, Dr. McHugh, that was his first thing. He said, this is how it will end is it by lawsuits. And, uh, mm-hmm. and lo and behold, you know, here we are on that pathway. Yeah. So, Well, thankfully, it is coming to an end in a lot of places. I wish it was faster, yeah. but, <laughs> yeah. you know, what can you do? Um, so I wanted to talk to you about um, puberty blockers and executive function. So if you could first explain what executive function is. Um, so executive function comes from the development of the frontal lobe of the brain. Okay. It's sort of the clearing house of, you know, of what makes sense, what, you know, risk taking and, and consequences. Um, and, and also it governs how learning pathways work. So you, if you facilitate uh, executive function, you facilitate the, the ability for the child to do well in school. Um, that's why some of the medications that are sort of thrown at the kids with the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, which is another quagmire of an issue, uh, but it, you know, executive function can Im- improve with the use of some neurostimulants. And so, you know, the wiring of the brain is, is, is very active. Things are being taken down and things are being reprogrammed all the way through adolescence. And when you stop that process, it's inevitable you are going to mess up where the child was, uh, you know, going to be going intellectually uh, and, and in terms of their intellectual com- competencies. And you don't have a control to say, okay, I'm going to treat half of you with a puberty blocker and let the other half of you go through puberty. And then let's do some IQ testing and, you know, neuropsychological evaluation of, of, the, of the pathways of learning, which are convoluted and amazing. And see which, you know, whether or not the half that was treated, uh, you know, because it's everyone's an individual. I mean, there's just no real way to do this. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, but if you know that you're messing with the wiring, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're really playing with fire. I mean, it's just, there's no reason to do that, especially because there's no benefit. And that's the key. If there were a profound benefit from this, and you'd say it's, well, it's like a cancer drug, you know, you're going to, die of cancer if we don't dive in and give you a medication that's going to make you infertile, but you'll be alive. Um, there is clearly absolutely utterly no evidence that there's any improvement in mental health in the vast population of people who have been trans or who have had puberty blockers, none whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Now there is also some concern that when you look at the data and tease it out, there's actually worsening of mental health, but you know, that's, that's a, a sort of a slippery soap you can go down and they could say, well, what are you basing that on? You know, yeah. uh, poorly done studies. And the answer is, yeah, because we don't have studies mm-hmm. um, that we can really say controlled studies. We're doing a retrospective review, just like you guys did to make your case. And so it's the same argument. We'll stay away from that. What we do know, we can unequivocally say is there is no improvement in mental health. 
Um, mm -hmm. And what we do know also is that kids who've been blocked, had their puberty blocked and combination of that and cross-sex hormones, they may not be suicidal, but the number of medications they take to, uh, to settle their ill mental health rises precipitously when they have uh, puberty block and mm -hmm. cross-sex hormones. They may look stable like the ocean is, is calm on the surface, but beneath there, there is a ton of turmoil going on, which requires more and more and more medication to solve the mental health issues and keep them stable. And that yeah. we know for sure. That's that's an un, you know a, unquestionable a finding in these kids with puberty blockers. So uh, we're just you know you can extrapolate and say, well, why would we even take the risk? You know, mm -hmm. uh, if we we know how critical it is that the the building of the brain and the wiring, the rewiring, the unwiring, the rewiring is all happening during adolescence up to you know the the brain is very plastic up to age twenty five and it's probably a little beyond. Why would you want to interrupt that when you can't regain that? Yeah. Take back and, and undo what you've done. Yeah. It is really alarming how people forget that kids and adolescents are just in flux for so long. Like there's sure. so much development going on. A 10 year old and a 14 year old are like worlds apart from one yes. another. And, and it's and a 21 year old or a 25 year old. You know? Exactly. And so it's really bizarre that people are just like, nah, they're all the same. Just go ahead and throw the kitchen sink at it. Sure. Um, and instead of trying to guide these kids and help them accept themselves, we're taking these bright kids who might be like an outlier socially or something like that and medicalizing them simply because they don't fit in. And it's really tragic to see that and very perverted that it's being done in the name of kindness. It, it does not make sense to me. Um, I would really like to see children celebrated for their differences and yes. um, accepted as opposed yeah, to... I mean, the whole concept <laughs> of, you know, what is wrong with the effeminate boy or the very uh, masculine acting tomboy girl? There is, mm -hmm. there is nothing to not celebrate about them. You yeah. know, they are wonderful human beings who need, need to flourish and yeah. say that, oh, you're, you're wrong. I mean, you're, you're damaged because yes. you're an effeminate boy. So we're going to fix that for you. you know, we're and, gonna, that's, and, and I mean, how, yeah. how cruel that is to the child to be told that they're inherently, they're, they're flawed so badly that they need medicine and surgery when what yeah. it is really is that they're struggling uh, to be accepted during a really quagmire time of their life yeah everyone goes through i mean i, I always <laughs> refer to middle school as a cesspool of of emotional dysfunction for the best of kids uh and then mm -hmm. you take the kids that are on the margin who might be you know on the autism spectrum and awkward or have physical disabilities or you know somehow be outcast uh, in their own minds yeah. uh, for reasons that are actually bona fide as opposed to just not liking themselves yeah. Which is what every 14-year-old <laughs> is. Yeah. At some they, just, they just don't like themselves at all. They don't know where they're going. They don't know mm -hmm. why and what they can do about it. And they're afraid and they're uh, miserable and they want to be something else. Yeah. Well, it's a big change. Suddenly your interests totally change. Suddenly you're not just some little kid wanting to play with toys. Now you have all these weird urges and you have all these like thoughts and emotions and it's just so tumultuous yeah. and it really is like that 
that time like in the chrysalis between caterpillar and butterfly and (laughs) the whole thing's just like breaking down and being reconstructed and then somehow you come out the other end and mostly just forget about it you're like that was weird anyway (laughs) i'm okay yeah i got got to not worry so much about the shape of my nose you know it's yeah it's okay it's like it's the best time though to have a bad like haircut or something (laughs) because then it's like excusable. It's like I was like fourteen, so it makes sense. Yeah, I got, um, my, I got my curly perm when I was fourteen, and it's uh, I was uh, like an experiment, and then my hair grew out. And thank God, you know, my mom told me not to do it, and I said I was just uh, I had to do it, and I did it. And it's done. Yes, yeah, those was, changes are are that's time for those kinds of changes, yeah. not permanent ones, because it, nobody's ready at that age to make yeah. permanent changes. Um, so going back to the precocious puberty, um, I have questions about that, um, because you did say that it is a pause button for children who are very young and that you put them on it for a certain amount of time. Can you elaborate on what you mean by pause button? Because your body's still going through changes, but, and it's still growing. Well, there's a background degree of growth okay but there is nothing sort of revolutionary going on at that point in time in terms of growth it, everything has not been, really been exposed uh consistently to the to hormones of, of puberty uh that we sort of see this bubbling up and we catch it as soon as we can um uh, and by doing so we're not you know that's not a time of life when there's a lot of of anatomical change. There's not there's not a lot going on in any organ system that it's it's not exponential in any possible way. So to to just take that and shut that down for a year or two. And the purpose is not to let the child supposedly make a decision about where they want to go, such as they always talk about, oh the puberty box is just a pause button so that they can sit back and reflect and they're counseling and decide whether or not this is really what they want to do. That is absolute BS. They get on the puberty blockers and the first thing they want to do is to appear to be in puberty like their peers are, but in the, for looking like the opposite sex puberty instead. So uh, the Dutch study had a long time. It was puberty blockers maybe by the age of 12 or 13 when they'd already been in puberty for literally a couple of years. Stop it then, and then three to five years later, uh, consider cross-sex hormones. In the U.S. transgender clinics, it's start puberty blockers, and within six to 12 months, you're on cross-sex hormones. And 98% of kids on puberty blockers do the cross-sex hormones, 98%. And they're proud of that statistic. They've actually published and say, look at this. There's been no regret. There's no such thing as regret. That's all manufactured by wacko right-wing transphobes. Uh, everybody's happy you see because why would you go forward if 98% of the people go forward that means that they're happy and they made the right mm-hmm. choice and they're, but it's this if when they say it's just a pause you want to just basically punch their lights out because it's such a <laughs> blatant lie okay when they say they're going to kill themselves if they don't get this this is life-saving care you want to punch their lights out because it's a blatant lie I mean <laughs> you know I mean I'm not violent in any way but I mean you just want to say how on God's green earth, can you, as a scientist, even open your mouth and utter such travesty? It is just an outright bald-faced lie, and you are you are using that as a sledgehammer to force these kids 
into something which they will regret inevitably. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, if somebody's made a really god awful mistake as an adult, and they say, it's my fault, I did it, I'm just gonna have to live with the consequences. And they happen to be not so miserable with their medical circumstances, that when they answer a survey, are you happy with what you did? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy. You know, well, let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's tease that out. Okay, I think, you know, Kenneth Zucker, who is the sort of the godfather of, of uh, gender identity disorder, as it was called then, uh, said every one of these adults needs lifelong mental health care. Mm-hmm. Now, if they persist through adolescence into adulthood, and that's the direction they go, they're probably not going to be, uh, they're going to scream and kick until they get their transition. So when you do that, if that's the choice that they take, you do not let them loose. You insist that they continue mental health counseling for the balance of their lives. Because, you know, the, the lifespan of adult transgender individuals was reported to be half that of the standard population. Yeah. It's always very sad to see. Um, And I think that's very true that a lot of them do still need a lot of mental health services. Um, Like with any kind of mental health disorder that causes delusions and things like that. Also, fundamentally, you know, it's a lie. So I think that really, you know, they're escaping from something that, that really has eaten them up inside uh, to the point where they say, I can't be who I was scheduled to be. Mm. I've got to run away from it. I have got to hide somewhere. I have got to get that boogeyman to not be part of my life. And I'll do it by changing from a man to a woman or a woman to a man. And that'll do it. You know, that'll help me escape. And a lot of the times the things that they're running from are all related to, to, uh, traumatic experiences, including being sexually abused as a child. I mean, yeah. that, that's, there's a, about a 60% chance that an individual who is transing has had some form of, of uh, sexual abuse. Yeah. So, you know, when you put, when you put that statistic on the table, oh my God, you, you have hit a nerve and they're saying, all right, you're saying that all these people are trans, you know, are perverts. And you know, <laughs> you're not listening to what I said. Yeah. You know, these kids don't do this for a reason just because they they're they are actually you can't be born in the wrong body. That's it. That's just science. So if they're trying to be in a different body, there is a reason why. Yeah. And I love it. Walt Heyer, who is one of the octogenarians of of uh, detransitioners, says when I when people come to me and they ask for help or they're you know, they're 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 questioning me, I. I, I asked them this very simple question. Why did you not want to be the sex you were born? What happened to make you not want to be the man you were supposed to be or the woman that you were supposed to be? What happened? Mm-hmm. He says they, they get taken aback and they makes them think. And then all of a sudden it makes sense to them. You know, well, mm-hmm. why didn't we work on the trauma that led you right. to not want to be who you are? And to convince you that you could be something that you're not, uh, and let's yeah. work on that. Let's work on that. That's where you need help. Now that now that you're where you are, you know, God bless you. Um, it's where you are, and we're going to pick up the pieces, and and we're going to get you to be the most healed person we possibly can, given your circumstances. I have spoken to a lot of um, trans-identified people 
because of my own struggles with gender dysphoria and it people I like and people I don't like, um, people who are activists and people who aren't. And, um, honestly, it just always comes back to, to self-loathing and, and feeling like you were wrong for a myriad of reasons and then blaming it on your sex and blaming that you didn't fit it on it. And for me and for them, like, as we've talked about it, it, it really does. Like when you start asking these fundamental questions like that, it really does start to melt away a lot of that delusional thinking like, Oh, you know, it was meant to be. I always felt this way. It's a fundamental part of me. I was born with that feeling. And then no, it all starts to fall away because we realize it was something informed by family or it was something informed by, um, the way we saw men or women being treated in culture or, or what have you. And sometimes there is abuse and sometimes there are comorbidities and, and things like that. It's, it's crazy. Like how many of us have things like OCD or ADHD or autism or something. And, um, I'm honestly like starting to wonder if like some of it is caused by OCD and like obsessive thinking and, and stuff like there's, that. There's no question that it's, to come yeah. to the conclusion that you're, you are something you're not comes from, from, uh, a, a fear. I mean, an undercurrent mental health discomfort that's so intense that you, you're looking for how do I, how the hell do I get out of this? You know, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, you go to a counselor who may be a counselor that's just not suited to you. And you think, well, I've been to counseling and I don't, my anxiety is still here. It didn't help. I don't think counseling is the answer. Uh, cause that happens. I mean, there are therapists mm -hmm. that just aren't good fit. Some of them are terrible therapists for everybody. Some are dynamic and perfect for certain individuals and the wrong fit for others. Um, you have to be so careful about seeking the help and, and not thinking that because you don't feel better immediately that it's not a mental health issue. I mean, th mm -hmm. you know, this is all about mental health. I mean, there is no biologic basis at any aspect of it whatsoever, other than perhaps a, uh, a tendency for personality to be, you know, this way or that way. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's for, I mean, there's, you know, having a gene that says you're, you have maybe a greater, 30% greater likelihood of becoming an alcoholic as an adult uh, doesn't mean that you have to be an alcoholic. You know, you can say that's, that's, point. that's yeah. the background there. Uh, but there are things that I do to either fall down that canyon or to just realize the canyon's there and I'm never going down in there. Yeah. And so you, you know, you take everything that, that you can and say, I need help and I want to be, I want to be a whole person and I want to be happy. Let's get, mm -hmm. let's make that the goal. Don't, don't, you know, all the other stuff, directions you're going, things you're thinking about, uh, is all window dressing and yeah. this such bad window dressing because it just tears the snot out of a normal, healthy body and mm -hmm. makes it just damaged, unquestionably damaged, or it wouldn't have been if you had just focused on the mental health and the wellness of that child. So yeah. when I hear that there are experts who, who, um, are focused, you know, they're, oh, I'm an expert on gender, uh, you know, mental health, come to my transgender clinic and, you know, we'll work on this together. That's, that's just somebody who just says rubber stamps, you know, the, the guidelines mm -hmm. and you're one size fits all. Oh no, but it's very individualized. You see, 
I mean, I hear that over and over again. Every kid is totally assessed individually and thoroughly evaluated. No, they're not. They're not. Yeah. They're just put on the So computer. as an endocrinologist, do you know that, as you said, it is damaging for the body and we can't really do studies because of that. Like they can't really be approved because of the nature of the damage that they can do. So, um, why is it allowed if we can't do these studies and it, it's known to be so damaging? Um, because it got slipped into academia, um, and, and celebrated mm -hmm. and the fear that if you don't go along with this, uh, you're, you're a bad person. I mean, you are to be chastised. You will be kicked out of an academic department. You will not allowed to be published in any journals. We will see, we will use our network of, uh, because it's like, you know, it's like you're being a racist. Okay. And the, you're, mm. you're, we don't allow that on our faculty. We, you know, we are, we are a faculty of, you know, pure heart and, um, you know, and goodness. Uh, we, we are not haters. And so shame on you. Uh, for even considering this, and that is such a powerful weapon to yield, and it, it you know, this is this is at a time where, you know, b being phobic about anything and just calling somebody a, a, a phobe of any kind mm -hmm. is like, oh no, you can't, oh, no, 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 that's not me, that's not me. Okay, okay, all right, I'll let you, I'll, 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 I won't do this, but I'll look the other way, and that's that's what's happening in academia. So it's, it's just it's a nucleus yeah. of very very. Um, angry you know, mm -hmm. people in power who are saying, I am going to make you squirm like a bug because I'm not happy with myself <laughs> for yeah. whatever reason. And, uh, you know, I've never felt happy truly, but I am in a position where I can make your life absolutely miserable. And I can publish and you can't. Ha ha ha. Okay. Mm. So I'm already got one leg up on you. I can present at meetings. You can't. I'll make yeah. sure you can't. I've got the people who are designing the meeting and I'm going to tell them you are not to be considered as a speaker. You're awful. Wow. You're terrible. And so, you know, we can't, we can't have the, we can't get into the educational forums that, that mm -hmm. allow us to have a dialogue. So there's no dialogue on yeah. purpose. The only reason you would squash dialogue is if you were afraid of it. Yes. Period. I'm not afraid to talk. So would, who's phobic? Yeah. You know, and so, <laughs> So, you know, just, yeah. you know, let, let science be science. You know, that's what science is. It's a, it's, it's a constant reevaluation, a challenge, a hypothesis, a theory, a proof, uh, and mistakes have been made in science, you know, and mm -hmm. so we've only gotten moved forward to better things because we let the questions be asked. We, we questioned frontal lobotomies and said, no, mm -hmm. you know, there's way more harm in there. You know, so that got tossed out. Um, and, and I'm, with good reason. There's no such things as uh, repressed memories. Okay. That's mm -hmm. Paul McHugh's first great triumph was to get rid of that because that was a quagmire mess of, of nonsense, which had parents jailed and family and the kids were, kids were having a party getting their parents in trouble uh, and loved it. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, like the Salem witch trials. I mean, it's just, you know, all these things historically where you can get, you can get and wag the dog by the tail. If you're given that tail to hold on to and given permission to do so, um, this is where we are with this. And it's just, it's incredible yeah. that it's happened. Then all we're asking for is a platform and a dialogue. Mm -hmm. And in the, if you shine light on this sucker, everything will just disappear in turn because it, it's not based on any science whatsoever. Yeah. 
Is this medicine, would you say? There are a lot of places in medicine where, you know, I've been practicing medicine as a general pediatrician and a pediatric endocrinologist overall for what now, let's see, let me think my residency. So I, that's about 47 years total. And I have seen stuff happen uh, in, in where influences by new drugs that wanted to be introduced and that replaced old drugs that were perfectly wonderful and, but unfortunately very cheap, mm. <laughs> you know, new <laughs> things would come in and I'd say, oh man, you know, this is, this is unnecessary, but it just kind of got into the, you know, into the mix and they got accepted and then became a standard of care and the cost came down eventually. But other things that were less expensive were very effective uh, mm -hmm. and had uh, less side effects. And, and if you, if you knew how to use them, so it's like the art of medicine is disappearing and we're into sort of a protocol, you know, rubber stamp kind of a thing, which to me is a sad thing. You know, it's what, mm -hmm. what um, we need, we should be doing as, as physicians is, you know, not just, you know, practicing cold fact, but mix it together with, with, uh, you know, empathy for the patient and, and an eye on, on morality. I mean, you know, that's, everything is falling apart because we're, we're being shamed for following some sort of moral compass. That's true. I uh, think that, so. That, you know, uh, I'm thinking, well, you're. Your lack of a moral compass is its own religion. Okay, it's a, that's true. A yeah, relativism is a religion, if you will, and you're imposing that on us through government mm -hmm. regulation and shaming uh, people who are uh, practicing their faith according to the doctrines of their faith uh, and having a moral center uh, and calling it. Oh, you can't do that. You're being judgmental. Well, you're, you know, <laughs> calling me a, a transphobe is being quite judgmental. I would say yes. You know, because there's nothing. You know, I'm not, and you, an, an anti-trans person. Well, no, I'm a, I'm so pro these kids saving their lives and from damage mm -hmm. that I'm one of the most pro-trans individuals on the planet, and yet I am painted as anti-trans, which to me is 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 name-calling and is phobic. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah, it works two ways. It definitely does. So, um, so going back to the studies about. Um, precocious puberty. I'm sorry I keep asking about this so much. I've just seen this argument thrown around so much. So I want to try and like have all the information I can. Um, were there any studies done on the prolonged bone health or the organ development and about how long are these kids put on blockers for precocious puberty? So the, the average length of time is probably two years. Okay. okay. There's some outriders on that. Um, if, you know, luckily we have in our armamentarium of the puberty blockers, things that don't last a year. Okay. But that mm -hmm. last a couple of months where if you try it on for size and you have a really bad emotional turmoil outcome, you can say, okay, we're not going to continue beyond the period where this first treatment of the three month product, it, it'll wear off. And, you know, we've, we've proven that this is not a good fit for your child. Um, but if you, you know, have a preconceived notion that you're going to do this and not pay attention to adverse outcomes, um, the, you know, if you're going to pay attention, then you can, you go as long as you need to, to just, uh, undo this in time for them to get into puberty at the time when their body is physiologically expecting those changes. That's mm -hmm. what you want. So blocking puberty for a, a prepubertal child is not going to affect their bone density because their body is not expected to start accruing calcium 
in the adolescent time frame because they're not in that age group. Um, but it's very critical that in adolescence up through age 25, that you do not block their puberty, that you do not let the estrogen levels drop because that, that ends up unfortunately blocking the ability of calcium to enter into the skeletal system. And then you can't put it in afterwards very effectively. It's mm -hmm. very, the doors are closed. So what's in the bank is in the bank. Okay. So we know that, that no one argues that no one on the other side argues that they just say it's, well, you know, do you want brittle bones or do you want to be dead? You know, I mean, well, no, mm -hmm. we've already taken the dead part out that there's not saving a life at all, period. Don't even let that, if that goes by your lips, you're a charlatan and you should be shut down. So beyond that, um, you know, they, 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 there's a total agreement that bone density is adversely affected when you okay. block puberty in the adolescent years. There's no evidence that when you do that in a younger child for a couple of years, that that's an, that's an outcome. So somehow then the body knows based on like your age, how your bone density needs to be taken into account. Like what? It's, it's needs one of the mysteries of, of human physiology is that, you know, there are times and as a season for everything. Okay. And, Interesting. you know, pulling in calcium in, in, in giant quantities, um, is not what you need to do when you're three, four, five, and six years old. You can, your systems are open. Um, your, if your diet has uh, calcium in it and you're taking in adequate vitamin D or you make on your own vitamin D with sun exposure, which is something that we're seeing. You know, vitamin D you know, is not coming in the, into the body and helping calcium be absorbed as much because of sunscreens. Mm. You know, we're all very sensitive about, you know, sunscreening everybody in, in infants and toddlers and a young child, you know, you don't, no sunburn, no, no uh, UV radiation that could cause, but UV radiation is what helped the skin manufacture vitamin D for us. So mm. this is a, sort of a, a new phenomenon over the past, uh, say, three decades. Um, and so we, we know those things, but, you know, it was not critical. The critical time is when your bones begin to elongate uh, mm -hmm. and they need that calcium coming in. And the, your, you know, calcium is an ion that is necessary for chemical cellular reactions in muscles and, and it affects insulin's uh, ability to get inside cells. It's, it's a vital ion in the body. And your body will do anything it can to keep your calcium levels up. And to do so, it borrows from the skeleton. That's where the calcium comes mm. from and it can't come from the diet anymore. So uh, if you deplete that, that banking account and it can't be borrowed from later on, you end up with osteoporosis and fractures and, and menopause and things like that. So um, you know, we, we know that about the, the standard events that occur and those aren't occurring. The body is not going through, um, you know, uh, a giant growth spurt uh, in, in ages four, five, and six. The, the biggest time of growth is the first year of life, and then it tapers down and settles down for a while until puberty comes along, and then you have a, a large period of growth and elongation of the, of the long bones, which gives you your height. So missing, you know, stopping that at a time when that's not really what the body is expecting and isn't mm -hmm. necessary is is a is an okay thing to do. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 you weigh it, you weigh it, measure it. If this child's going to be tall and this child's going to menstruate in the fourth grade, as opposed to the second grade, I tend to just say to the parents, look, it's just best to watch and wait and not do this. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there is an option, but I, I, I think your child's going to be fine. will not end up short. Uh, will be able to tolerate things socially. Um, you know, 
And there are families where the age at onset of periods uh, is average nine or 10. And so mom, sisters, aunties, grandmas all went through. And those families Mm -hmm. do not want to touch the puberty blockers with a 10 foot pole. We did it. We're fine. (laughs) We know how to handle it. Yeah. Do us alone. And I say, amen to that. That was my experience in my family. So, so just, you know, that's different than, you know, a kiddo who has no family history of that and who, you know, Mm -hmm. is starting with breast budding at age six and, and moving, you know, to the point where, okay, when you're eight, you're going to start your periods and you're going to end up being quite short. Those are the kids that we recommend. We, you know, never, never, ever tell a parent they have to do something. You give them the option because this is not, again, it's not a life uh, issue. It's it's a, maybe a quality of social circumstances for a couple of years, but it's not going to end their life or make them handicapped because they entered puberty early. Okay. So, um, that's so interesting. So if you're starting puberty, then that early, do we know why the bones don't just start doing that whole cascade of things? And well, they, they will eventually, if you let it go. Okay. If you let okay. them get in through the middle of puberty and toward, you know, because puberty is, mm. a, is a six to seven year process from start okay. to the end of it. And we're catching these kids in year one. Okay. Okay. Not in if they're in year four, there's nothing you can really do for them that's really going to help them in the long run. Okay. So because they're getting into that, their brains then are 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 doing, and we don't have, we really have never looked at a study of the general population of kids who experience spontaneous, uninhibited precocious puberty to see whether or not they had any intellectual differences. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we know an awful lot about the kids that have what we call constitutional delay. Uh, the girls that are gymnasts and uh, you know track and field sprinters and stuff and, and long distance runners that they delay menarche, you know, the onset of periods uh, because they don't have enough body fat to sustain a pregnancy right. and, and nurse a child. And, and so mm-hmm. the body says, "Oh, you haven't got enough body fat. We're not going to let you have that cycle start and 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 be mm-hmm. able to conceive until you get some body fat on your body." Yeah. And so those girls sometimes are 16 and 17 mm-hmm. uh, and before they have their first period and their bones are already at risk. So oh, we, wow. yeah, we really push to, you know, if a girl hasn't started her periods by the time she's 15, we're, we're looking for reasons that, you know, and if, if there's nothing pathologic going on, we'll start, we'll give them some estrogen supplements to get them just so their bone health is okay. We know okay. that. I mean, that's the same endocrinologists that are recommending puberty blockers are recommending estrogen supplements for girls and adolescents who are delayed. Wow, that's because they know it's wrong. Yeah, you know, they know they're wrong. Yeah, talk about hypocrisy. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, and one of the most Hippocratic things I heard was a an expert from uh, Cincinnati Children's, not no, or Columbus Children's Hospital rather, uh, who wrote one paper saying it's unethical to put uh, adolescent males who are autistic, severely autistic, who have unbridled libido and they're, they're sexually touching everybody and they're masturbating in public. And it's, it's, it's absolutely abhorrent to do that ethically, to put them on a puberty blocker because they can't consent. That same author said, oh, block puberty in, in kids who, are, who want to be transgender because wow. that's ethical. They can't consent. So how can you write one paper and the other paper be the same person, use the same standards, which are totally at odds with each other, that that's, that's in that you, that's happened. And it's like, you sit back and say, Oh my God, do you not see what you're doing? (laughs) You don't see the hypocrisy in this. I really don't think they do. 
it's it's alarming. I'm, I'm gonna, I've got about about five more minutes that I can. Okay. Because okay, I, mean, um, I can talk for three hours, but I've got to get someplace. <laughs> we'll just have to have you on again another time. Okay. Um, Happy. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us and for asking or for answering all of my questions that I had um, written down here. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while since I heard about who you were and I was so excited to see you at the conference. It's like seeing a celebrity. I was like, oh my gosh, there he is. <laughs> I was, I just, I love that conference because there are so many phenomenal people uh, that yes. I'm running into that, that I've not known before or whose names I've heard of it. Uh, mm -hmm. to just have a chance. I mean, I love the panels that they had at the conference and yeah. particularly the panel where we had the political left and political right on mm -hmm. the stage, respecting each other so highly yes. and, and, and agreeing so strongly on the core issues on this. Yes. It's just like, oh, you know, yeah. there's hope in this world. <laughs> It really is. It warmed my heart. I'm I'm coming from the left. Like I the, I moved over. Well, they left me behind, and then yeah. okay. I had to go and find out all this information that I had been lied to for years. But like, um, so then I yeah, it was really warming to me to see all that like cooperation and getting along. And I'm more of a traditional like liberal. I love seeing that. And I've always been very patriotic. My family immigrated from Cuba. I love America and I love this, that we can be different and yet agree on things and, and cooperate. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love that I got to meet you and that you graced us with your presence and we're so patient answering all these questions so professionally. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, happy, happy to do it. And we can do this again sometime. I'm happy to you know have a longer Definitely. conversation. With, okay. <laughs> all right. Okay. I'm going to stop the recording and then let's see.